and welcome to Line by Line, a podcast about reading. Two guests, three short extracts and some close attention paid. Because, as the novelist Edith Wharton once said, reading should be regarded as a creative act, along with writing. Reading on and between the lines today are the writer and critic Ella Wakatama, chair of the Kane Prize for African Writing and editor-at-large for Canongate Books, and the critic John Self, who writes about books on his own blog, Asylum, but also reviews for a wide variety of newspapers and radio programmes. Um, welcome to both of you. Thank you. Uh, John, am I right in saying that... Um, not so long ago, weary of the insecurity of life as a qualified solicitor, you gave that up for the the famous job security of of freelance book reviewing. That is right, Tom. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I, I had my midlife crisis, and I, I decided to um, you know rather than and roar out of it on a on, on a Harley Davidson, I would I would come out with the you know sort of clouds of ink and, uh, and metaphorical tweed elbows. So yep, um, I, I've I've been doing that for just two years this month actually. So um so yeah that's been um that's been really interesting you know it it uh, it sharpens the mind doesn't it Well uh, I mean it makes your commitment to reading pretty clear I think and Ella mm. you you have um been an editor at at sort of at Granter you've been a, a deputy editor at Granter but also a, a publishing editor as well um so books and reading are kind of absolutely central to your life I was going to say they are and I tell my children to be solicitors <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, we're going to hear readings of all three passages before we talk about them. But um, if you want to have the text in front of you as you listen, pause now and go to linebyline.substack.com where you can subscribe to an email which will send you the readings when a new episode is released. As usual, the passages have a thematic link. It's slightly hard to describe this week, but all of our passages feature broken syntax or language from which all the connective tissue has been removed or has evaporated. You should be able to hear what I mean with our first passage. This comes from a 1954 novel. It's an account of a New England family and it includes passages from the father of the family's journals. And this is from a section which describes his agreement to marry a young woman who's been left pregnant by his employer. And the plan is that she will give the baby up for adoption once it's born. And this passage describes what happens pretty soon after the birth, after the new mother has bolted from the house. Pear tree in garden pruned to look like fountain. Sunshade, perhaps. Graceful tent of leaves. Under this she sat, bodice unbuttoned, camisole unlaced, child at breast, fretful crying, did not speak, she and me. Eyes only. No explanations, names even. Child sucking, but crying also. A little rain began to fall, but not on us. Pear tree served as adequate shelter. Baby fell asleep. How long we sat there, I don't know. Half hour, perhaps. Watched oyster shell road darken in rain. Still no drops touched us. I have more tears than milk, she said. I have more tears than milk. I've cried my breasts dry, carried sleeping baby, sheltered by head, shoulders from rain, back to soapbox in kitchen near stove, took livery to station. Have no wish to dwell on sordid matters, sorrows, etc. Bestiality of grief. Times in life when we can count only on brute will to live. Forget, forget. 
By this, Leander meant to say that Clarissa was drowned in the Charles River that night. Took cars to St. Botolph's next morning with old mother and poor Clarissa. Overcast day. Not cold. Variable winds. South, southwest. Hearse at station. Few rubbernecks watching. Father Frisbee said the words. Old man then, old friend. Purple face. Skirts blowing in wind. Showed old-fashioned Congress boots. Thick stockings. Family lot on hill above river. Water, hills, fields restore first taste of sense. Never marry again. Roof of old house visible in distance. Abode of rats, squirrels, porcupines. Haunted house for children. Wind slacked off in middle of prayer. Distant electrical smell of rain. Sound amongst leaves. Stubble. Hath but a short span, says Father Frisbee. Full of misery is he. Rain more eloquent, heartening and merciful. Oldest sounds to reach porches of man's ear. John, let's start with you. Um, we, we talk about them initially without sort of naming them, even if you recognise yep. this. I don't know whether you do recognise this. I, I, I don't. I mean, well, the, the author I immediately thought of when I read it was Henry Green, because um, he's famous for um, removing all the extraneous matter from his sentences, you know, including the those and as. Um, and it's a little bit like that, although uh, 1954 would be about right, but... New England may not be, um, and I have heroically resisted searching for any of these these uh, passages. But it did remind me a little bit of that that um, Henry Green style, and uh, you know, removing what is not really necessary in his view. But of course, what's not necessary for the writer is not necessarily what's not necessary for the reader. Um, and you do find that as you're reading these sort of little broken um, fragments that you you're filling in the, the the missing bits yourself. And that's, of course, part of the creative act of reading, I suppose. That's absolutely to the point, isn't it? It It is harder work for a reader, this. But I think John makes an excellent point because the effort the reader needs to make with this kind of writing, which is so stripped down, is what what really engages the, the reader. If the writer gets it right, then that effort of what's going on here, how do I fill in the blanks and why is it written like this? encourages attention and um, when it works it's magic. Uh, so did it work for you? I know you're getting it out of context here which is sort of not not entirely fair but yes. did it work for you as a passage? It, it totally worked for me. I mean it, the all of the passages were interesting to me Tom because it's the kind of writing that I'm generally after as a publisher where rules are being broken and it only works if you're very very skilled but what I liked about this was that you had these things that popped out of you that were so packed full of emotion. There's a sentence here that says, I have more tears than milk. And if you think about sort of the nourishment and love and the, the beginnings of that relationship between mother and child and how important it is, and then sort of juxtaposing that with, you know, tears, which is another, I guess, excretion from, from the body, but meaning something completely different. I found that quite jarring and at the same time, incredibly poetic. Um, so those moments where you have sort of language that's that's more full, that's not reduced or redacted, are chosen very, very carefully, and one does pay attention to them. That is the point, John, isn't it? That uh, that Ella makes that re the redactions can be very artful. It's a style that very often pretends to look artless. I mean, in this case, it's pretending to look like a kind of telegram ease from a writer. But in fact, it involves an enormous amount of artifice in terms of what is left out and what is retained. Yeah, it does. And, and actually, you telling us at the outset that there's actually uh, 
extracts from a journal type document it actually gives a slightly different texture than it had whenever I read it and thought it was supposed to be a sort of an internal narrative from the from the uh, the character himself. And then of course you have this uh, contrast whenever there's this passage in in brackets, um, which is just in normal uh, prose. By this, Leander meant to say that Clarissa was drowned in the Charles River that night, which sort of packs a different kind of punch uh, because it's so different. Um, it is it is heart-stopping, that yeah. parenthesis. I mean, you won't hear on the reading that it is a parenthesis. Yeah. It's an aside, as it were, from the author. Yeah, and, and it's a sort of a reverse. It reminded me a little bit of, you know, that uh, opening couple of pages of Lolita where um, Humbert Humbert's describing his mother's death and it says, open brackets, picnic, comma, lightning, close brackets, which is done for comedy there, of course. And here the, the effect is quite quite the reverse. I mean, that parenthesis is enormously powerful, and particularly for, since it follows the words forget, forget. The notional writer of this passage is trying to exclude things, as the, as the language throughout excludes all sorts of words, uh, and it is forced back in by the, the author of the novel as a whole. Um, but I found this very lovely because of the, the final lines here that uh, biblical tone to reign more eloquent, heartening and merciful, oldest sound to reach porches of man's ear, which comes after the funeral. I thought that's a, t- that's a terrific line. And that comes right at the end of a chapter. It was, it was wonderful. It's the porches of man's ear. And, you know, one has to just sort of slow down at that point to figure out what it means, but also just to enjoy the sound of the words. I think that that pacing is really important because what the sort of the removal of those crucial articles and and filler words that we use is that it creates this kind of breathless pace where you get the sense of urgency and desperation and the words in all the sentences and parentheses slow everything down so you can really, I guess, absorb it. But I, I love that kind of breathless rush because you can you can feel the desperation of of the woman and the situation it's also a callback because earlier you have that uh, line about a little rain began to fall but not on us and then a little later still uh, watched oyster shell road darken in rain still no drops touched us and then right at the end of the passage, you have this rain approaching. I mean, it's, it's a rather odd thing, distant electrical smell of rain. Yes, yes. And the, the electrical smell of rain reminds me of that, that that's favourite word of everyone's petrichor, you know, the uh, the, the smell of, of the world after rain when it's released all the chemicals and the electricity in the, in, in the land. But that, I, I just wanted, wanted to back up, I suppose, my own uh, support for that last phrase, porches of man's ear. And I was going to compliment you, Tom, for cutting off the extract at that point. But now I realise it's the end of the chapter. You deserve no credit whatsoever. Um, but it's, uh, but it is a, it's a... It's to the writer's credit, yeah. It's a, it's a lovely image. And at the risk of, of, of you know, that, um, that, that juxtaposition of, you know, of, of a, what we normally associate with a, a human created building, a porch and, and the human body is, it reminds me at the risk of being... Um, uh, too lighthearted. Uh, the, the old Alexis Sale line about how he said, "I wasn't exactly um, at death's door, but I was certainly on death's patio." <laughs> the, I'm going to tell you who, where it comes from. This this is from John Cheever's novel, The Wapshot Chronicles. Oh, uh, which is an account of a, a New England family, and this is the diary, uh, the journal of Leander, who is the father of the family, and it come, it occurs throughout uh, the book. And the first time he brings it in, he actually refers to a famous eccentric um, New Englander called Timothy Dexter, who published a a kind of memoir 
Uh, and people complained because it was terribly spelt and had no punctuation and, and the orthography was all over the place. So he published a second um, edition of it and he put all the punctuation marks, prepositions, adverbs, articles, etc. at the end of the book and suggested people sprinkle them in whenever they wanted. That's genius. <laughs> he said, they may pepper and salt it as they please. <laughs> Tom, I was going to say, I, I did find myself fixating here on, on the, the milk and then thought about sort of all of the the liquids, the, the rain, the tears, the milk, you know, the milk and the rain is supposed to be life-giving and all of that tied together very nicely with me because it creates this conflict within you because you know, one thinks of mother's milk and it's supposed to be comfort. And then we have the violence of the rain and just all of those things. It's such a short passage. But it was so powerful because of that. Well, it, it, and it is. I think it's it's a very dramatic moment in this narrative, which is often comic and uh, picaresque. And it, it does all sorts of things, this novel. And this is a really shocking moment in it. You realise suddenly uh, what a depth of grief is in this man's life, which you haven't had any clue of before because he has fallen in love with this young woman which is just a marriage of convenience Cheever partly took this style from his own father's journals or from fragments of his own father's journals and he had a very difficult relationship with his father but and so he took it uh, uh, you know and imitated it and he admired the what he called the New England style that makes as little as possible of any event um, and I think that is the thing about ellipsis in writing, is that it is it is it always seems to be toning things down. I don't know whether you feel that's true or not, John, because it also has that Joycean stream of consciousness. Yeah, 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 it does. But I, I was really interested to hear that it is by Cheever, Tom, because um, I'm a huge fan of his stories. But I've always I've read a few of his novels and I've always sort of felt that they didn't quite live up. But um, I suppose the fact that this um, and I think he worked on the Wapshot Chronicle for about 20 years. It took him you know, a very long time to get it done. Yes, it was an enormous struggle and. Uh, and, but then a, a huge success. Yeah, and time well spent. And, and clearly, we can see from the, the amount of detail and the sort of, um, you know, how well this passage works on its own, that um, he maybe is still working at that sort of short story scale and in some ways on the page. It is, I think, I think this is true and not just apocryphal, that it was the first book to be published by the Book Club of America to contain the word fuck. <laughs> and there was a big there was a big argument about whether it would go in or not. And, and Chiva... Uh, to his credit, insisted that it would, even even at the risk of losing this hugely lucrative uh, deal. Um, anyway, let's listen to the uh, second extract now. This is a bit of light relief, really, and comes from a Victorian novel. Miss Wardle, said Mr Jingle, with affected earnestness, forgive intrusion, short acquaintance, no time for ceremony, all discovered. Sir, said the spinster aunt, rather astonished by the unexpected apparition and somewhat doubtful of Mr Jingle's sanity. Hush, said Mr Jingle in a stage whisper. Large boy, dumpling face, round eyes, rascal. Here he shook his head expressively and the spinster aunt trembled with agitation. I presume you allude to Joseph, sir, said the lady, making an effort to appear composed. Yes, ma'am, damn that Joe. Treacherous dog, Joe, told the old lady. Old lady, furious, wild, raving, arbor, Tupman, kissing and hugging, all that sort of thing, eh, ma'am, eh? Mr Jingle, said the spinster aunt, if you come here, sir, to insult me. 
Not at all, by no means, replied the unabashed Mr. Jingle. Overheard the tale, came to warn you of your danger. Tender my services, prevent the hubbub. Never mind, think it an insult, leave the room. And he turned, as if to carry the threat into execution. What shall I do, said the poor spinster, bursting into tears. My brother will be furious. Of course he will, said Mr. Jingle, pausing. Outrageous. "'Oh, Mr. Jingle, what can I say?' exclaimed the spinster aunt in another flood of despair. "'Say he dreamt it,' replied Mr. Jingle coolly. A ray of comfort darted across the mind of the spinster aunt at this suggestion. Mr. Jingle perceived it and followed up his advantage. "'Pooh, pooh, nothing more easy!' Blackguard boy, lovely woman, fat boy, horse whipped, you believed, end of the matter, all comfortable. Whether the probability of escaping from the consequences of this ill-timed discovery was delightful to the spinster's feelings, or whether the hearing herself described as a lovely woman softened the asperity of her grief, we know not. She blushed slightly and cast a grateful look on Mr. Jingle. That insinuating gentleman sighed deeply, fixed his eyes on the spinster aunt's face for a couple of minutes, started melodramatically, and suddenly withdrew them. "'You seem unhappy, Mr Jingle,' said the lady, in a plaintive voice. "'May I show my gratitude for your kind interference by inquiring into the cause, with a view, if possible, to its removal?' "'Ha!' exclaimed Mr Jingle, with another start. Removal! Remove my unhappiness and your love bestowed upon a man who is insensible to the blessing, who even now contemplates a design upon the affections of the niece of the creature who, but no, he is my friend. I will not expose his vices. Miss Wardle, farewell. At the conclusion of this address, the most consecutive he was ever known to utter Mr. Jingle applied to his eyes the remnant of a handkerchief before noticed and turned towards the door. So, Ella, um, I don't know whether you want to go first. Now, you know this, but you might have recognised this anyway because of the names, I think. This one also had for me that, that sense of urgency, along with the, the kind of um, the, the levity almost at the beginning with things like, you know, effective earnestness and that forgive intrusion, short notice, no time for ceremony, all discovered. My children um, often copy their grandfather who has that classic English way of speaking where everything is mumble and the odd word shoots out at you. And this reminded me of that immediately. And so um, I guess sort of anthropologically, it was quite interesting. It's so interesting you say that because as I was reading this for the sort of second or third time, just to make notes about it, um, the the person who came to mind is the fast show character, Roly Burke, yes. who's the old QC, <laughs> who sits completely yeah. drunk and comes up with this sort of string, this weird, surreal string of words, all of which seems to make sense. But you have to do the work of making it sense. You know, he says he'll suddenly say the whole thing was made of rubber. And you have to somehow connect that into the anecdote he's telling. And the comic effect is is a bit similar here, except it's much more controlled because the writer here wants you to know that certain things are happening. Uh, John, what did you think of it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really, really versatile technique, you know, because if you look at the, there are three um, 
passages from Mr. Jingle in a row, which is, uh, you know, uh, one, he's sort of um, being breathless and overexcitable about it. And then whenever she, um, Miss uh, Wardle sort of suggests that he might be insulting her, he's suddenly very defensive. Um, and then afterwards, whenever he says, say, he dreamt it, then they become quite conspiratorial. He's speaking in exactly the same, on the page, it's exactly the same each time, but you read it in a different way. And that shows, I think, the, the you know, the skill um, and, and the versatility of, of that technique. And of course, the the author who I'd, uh, I didn't look up, but I, I can guess from the names, as you say, Tom, who it may be. Um, and then, of course, there's this terrific contrast between that style and the sort of slightly ponderous, slow, you know, whether the probability of escaping the consequences of this ill-time discovery and so on, of the narrative itself, which really enhances then Mr. Jingle's, uh, Mr. Jingle's breathlessness. He contrasts with his own style, but he also contrasts with Miss Wardle, May I show my gratitude for your kind interference by inquiring into the cause with a view, if possible, to its removal. It couldn't be more grammatical uh, against this sort of flurry of interrupted language. Do you not think that Say He Dreamt It has a completely different tone to many of the other things? It seemed to me it sticks out. It's partly because of that word coolly. But it is, of course, a complete sentence. I think it's virtually the only complete sentence on the page in the sense that it occurs between a capital letter and a full stop. Every other sentence he utters um, has evidence of breaks, but that one doesn't. And I think it's wonderful, that detail, because you suddenly see how calculating Mr Jingle is. He sees his moment and dives in. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and that's where the, the the passage seems to take its turn because uh, I guess because the reader is perhaps stopped up short by that full sentence and by the way he he responds coolly and that gives us a pause and then we turn our we turn our minds to the uh, to the way they're going to start talking to each other after that. Ella, this went on slightly longer than I would normally do because I wanted to get in the line at the conclusion of this address, the most consecutive he was ever known to utter. Mr. Jingle applied to his eyes the remnant of a handkerchief before notice and turned towards the door. I'm going to say who it is. uh, People will know. I think it's from the Pickwick Papers and it's Dickens. I think Dickens knows he's lost the style there because he's needed for plot reasons to really stretch it out. And he's lost, temporarily lost Mr. Jingle's voice. And that's almost an apologia, that little, the most consecutive he was ever known to utter is, is sort of saying to the reader, yeah, I know I'm not still on on style here, but I needed to do that because you need you need to know stuff about what he's thinking. There's also some there's a shift in emotion there, Tom. There's something really sad about that applied to his eyes, the remnant of a handkerchief before notice. It's, Ella, we've got to you are you are you are susceptible to men like Mr. Jing. I totally am. I know this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm startled. You are much kinder than I am. So this means that one has to be very very careful, Tom. But. Thinking about how sort of the the earlier bits are, are they're swift and precise and sort of, you know, packed full of information. We were talking earlier in the first passage about the use of the ellipses dot, dot, dot. And here it's the dashes in that beginning part, the M dashes that are used throughout. And it has a similar effect, but the, the use of the M dash, and I'll get really nerdy here, makes you almost hold your breath thinking, okay, what's coming next? And as you said earlier, the reader has to then make those connections. And it it may look on the page as overuse, but it sort of builds up and builds up. And you can see that Dickens, the the author, then kind of abandons it sort of two-thirds through the the passage, and we get a very different feeling. And it's, it's 
very it's it is skillful <laughs> obviously <laughs> um can i just ask you both as readers does your heart slightly sink when a uh, a writer turns to this kind of device or do you like it my heart soars because i i think that there's something very ambitious and dangerous in this kind of writing because it can so easily go wrong and i like that kind of ambition and as long as, you know, this is speaking as an editor, as long as I can see why the writer is doing it, there's a way to kind of, in modern parlance, double down and get them to really commit to it. And that's always the most difficult thing. But my heart soars, and especially as... I, do, mm-hmm. I did want to ask you as an editor, Ella, how do you know when it's gone wrong? Because given that it is a fractured kind of prose and it's not meant to be grammatical and it has ellipses, how do you know... When it's not working. I, you you know when it's not working, one, if there's a lack of consistency. As a, as a reader or as a close reader, I think one should be able to tell that there's a reason for someone breaking rules in this way. And just as we said, you know, you were saying that last sentence, it's almost as if Dickens thinks, okay, that's been enough now. Let me just sort of pull back. There's an awareness there of the of the reason beyond that fragmentation, you know, behind that use of the M dash and so on. And readers do know because as soon as the writer breaks their own internal rule, you stumble on it. And that stumble tells you something is wrong. And that's what I hone in on as an editor and and think, okay, what rules is the writer using? And once I've got the rules written down, apply them and see if that makes a difference. And it always does. Would you have given Dickens some notes? He does need it sometimes, I think, Dickens. I I fear I would have. Oh, my goodness me. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, let's hear the last piece now, um, which um, I didn't really notice, actually, until just today. Also starts under a tree, just like our first piece. Anyway, let's hear it. Under the oleanders, I watched the hidden mountains and the mists drawn over their faces. It's cool today. Cool, calm and cloudy as an English summer. But a lovely place in any weather. However far I'll travel, I'll never see a lovelier. The hurricane months are not so far away, I thought, and saw that tree strike its roots deeper, making it ready to fight the wind. Useless. If and when it comes, they'll all go. Some of the royal palms stand, she told me. Stripped of their branches... Like tall brown pillars, still they stand defiant. Not for nothing are they called royal. The bamboos take an easier way. They bend to the earth and lie there, creaking, groaning, crying for mercy. The contemptuous wind passes, not caring for these abject things. Let them live. Howling, shrieking, laughing, the wild blast passes. But all that's some months away. It's an English summer now, so cool, so grey. Yet I think of my revenge and hurricanes. Words rush through my head, deeds too. Pity is one of them, gives me no rest. Pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast. I read that long ago when I was young. I hate poets now and poetry as I hate music which I loved once. Sing your songs, Rupert the Rhine, but I'll not listen. 
though they tell me you've a sweet voice. Pity. Is there none for me? Tied to a lunatic for life, a drunken, lying lunatic, gone her mother's way. She love you so much, so much. She thirsty for you. Love her a little like she say. It's all that you can love a little. Sneer to the last devil. Do you think that I don't know? She thirsts for anyone, not for me. She'll loosen her black hair and laugh and coax and flatter. A mad girl. She'll not care who she's loving. She'll moan and cry and give herself as no sane woman would or could. Then lie so still, still as this cloudy day, a lunatic who always knows the time, but never does. Okay, back to you, uh, John. Um, Again, I don't know whether you recognise this or not. I don't, and I have to say I found this one the hardest to get to grips with. as, as a passage on its own, um, you know, there's almost there's very little concrete in it to, for the new reader to grab hold of. It's almost all internal, and it strikes me as a passage that probably works best in its larger context in a novel of presumably uninterrupted internality, sort of internal monologue. Um, it isn't. You're you're absolutely right that it's much harder to grasp this. I think, uh, and it's not from a single, as it were, voice. The novel moves between voices, and this is one of the voices that you encounter. It's, it's strange, though, because the you know there's the sort of flowing, or one might even say rambling nature of the the prose. There's a lot of very powerful, solid, strong words in there that kind of contradict that. You know, like uh, you know, fight, repeated uses of blast, lunatic, drunken, lying lunatic contemptuous, mad. So there's this sort of conflict that, um, that makes it very interesting in one sense to read, but I did still find it quite difficult to um, to get to grips with. Are you saying um, that this is one voice within the novel, Tom, or this is a, a, an exchange of voices? No, it's one voice within the novel, but obviously recalling other voices and recalling things said. So it's got that nested Russian doll aspect to it. Um, Ella, what did you think of this passage? What I did want to say was that in this one, what I love most about this passage is the way that the the mountains and sort of the flora and the fauna are given such strong characteristics. You've got the mist drawn over their faces is the way that um, hidden mountains are described. And, you know, throughout the passage, the trees themselves are alive. You know, they're ascribed, ascribed with emotion and expression and intent. And, um, I found that sort of really beautiful and that sense of, you know, there's a small little passage, um, calm and cloudy as an English summer, that indicates to you that maybe you could be somewhere else that's being compared to an English summer. And it makes all of it, for me, it felt that there was this slight longing, but also a slight seduction. And one is wondering what happened, what happened. I thought it was gorgeous. I loved this. I mean, one of the reasons I quite liked it is because the romantic fallacy gets a complete working out. I mean, there is this sort of sense that the, you know, the trees are doing the work mm. of expressing human emotions. And yet he's also at odds with it. This narrator is is defying that at the same time. John, I'm going to tell you, because you don't know, that this is yep. Jean Rhys. 
Oh my goodness! Is this from uh, the White Star? Ah, so that's the, that's the, the the book. I, I love Jean Rhys, but that <laughs> no excuse. I love John Cheever, um, but that's the the novel of hers I've, I've had least success with. I love her, her early nineteen thirties novels. You know, the sort of um, women in Paris mm-hmm. and, uh, and and London struggling to, to stay afloat. But I've I've had less joy out of White Sargasso Sea. I must admit. So you know the White Sargasso Sea. Who would you hazard a guess as to whose voice this is? Uh, 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 no, <laughs> <laughs> you were on the you were on the I, cusp there. I, but it, I, I read it decades ago, brother. Foolishly, I read it before I read um, Jane Eyre, so um, that didn't help either. Yeah, I should say for people who don't know, the White Sargasso Sea is a is a kind of prequel, isn't it? It's a yeah. it's about the woman who comes to be known as the Mad Mrs. Rochester and how how she arrived at that place. I mean, my question, I suppose, is do you think this is the mad Mrs. Rochester or do you think this is Rochester? Uh, I think it's Rochester. It is Rochester, yeah. Um, And I think that too is interesting, that at this moment in this novel, the person who seems most deranged at this particular moment is the man who's complaining about somebody else's derangement. Well, I have a question for for the two of you as, as people who are reading while being male, do you think that Jean Rhys gets that voice right? Does she understand him? Because there's quite a feat in this book. She's sort of putting herself in lots of, as a writer, in in different characters who are distanced from from her own, I guess, person. Do you think she gets him right? I think this is pretty good because I think think, um, that thing that um, John notices about it that it resorts to the language of violence constantly. It, re- it resorts to these sort of rather forceful and words and verbs. And I think, well, it certainly fits my notion, not necessarily not all men, as they say, but certainly Rochester. I don't know about you, John. Yeah, I think it, I, I, I think it works. But as, as I said earlier, it's, it's, it's so hard to judge it out of the context of, you know, White Sagasso Sian and D.J. Erbing books that I read. 20 plus years ago. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit alien to me now. I liked the, the, also the passage in the middle. Uh, words rush through my head, deeds to words. Pity is one of them. Uh, and I'm sort of coming back to that notion of this style as being a, a way of representing the stream of consciousness. I wonder whether you think it actually does, John. I mean, it has become the accepted literary way of of conveying the disorderliness of thoughts and the way in which thoughts overlap each other. But I have a suspicion that it... it I mean, this is just a convention, just as much as something in The Fairy Queen that we have learned as a literary convention. And then, in fact, if you were to transcribe your thoughts, they'd be actually much more ordered than they ever are in literary novels. Yeah, I think I, I think that's right, and it, it it reflects on I suppose a um a, a bit of a trend that we see at the minute where you know trauma is tended tends to be represented in fiction in sort of fractured syntax. Um, where actually I read a novel recently, which uh, the title of which escapes me, where it was re- represented more as a sort of a a steady steady drum beat, which actually seemed to be. The, me to be quite refreshing because it was a more unusual way of doing it, even though the fractured syntax traditionally seen as the more refreshing way of doing it, if you see what I mean. So yeah, I I, I think there's definitely a case for that. And um and yeah, you know, if you if you write things down, we do tend to tend to try to make order out of them ourselves. Ella, I don't know what you think about that. Do you think this literary device is a is a is a 
an accurate one. Yes, I was sitting here sort of slightly embarrassed that um, you both claim to have ordered thoughts because that fractured syntax is disordered thinking. is very much how my own brain works, which is why this really speaks to me. Um, I mean, well, we just, we, I'm, <laughs> I'm just claiming it. Probably I'm like Roly Birkin, <laughs> you know, inside without the excuse of drink. <laughs> It's okay. Looking, looking, Tom, at that passage you um, highlighted, um, which goes on, pity is this one of them. It gives me no rest. Pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast. That last sentence, if it was a book that arrived at my desk as a submission with that sentence, I know that I would say to the reader, I'm having great trouble visualizing this because honestly, how does a naked newborn babe stride through the blast? But then with, with all of those um, problems I have with that same sentence, if you then sort of almost inhale it and don't overthink the sentence, there's something so jarring and so violent about the image that it does end up working for me. Who is he? Um, you'd have to be taking on, is it Shelley? I've forgotten who that line is from. It's from, is it from, I'm just Googling it. Is it Macbeth? Oh, is it? Okay. I didn't, yeah. You've already ticked off Dickens. And now you're but now you're giving Shakespeare. Is the the editor, if you don't fuss, then the readers will fuss. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon. I reckon Shakespeare is going to stick to that. <laughs> but do you know? I I didn't recognize that, but I still would. I still would say I had trouble visualizing it. <laughs> Well, that's great. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, thank you very much to both of you. That was such fun, Tom. Thank Thanks, you. Tom. Thank Thanks, you, John. Well, my thanks again to Ella Wakatama and John Self. Just a reminder that if you want to read the extracts we talk about in the programme, you can find them at linebyline.substack.com. And you can subscribe to an email there so you get advance notice of the next podcast, which in this case is going to feature non-fiction writing with Arifa Akbar, theatre critic of The Guardian and author of the memoir Consumed, A Sister Story, and Ed Caesar, staff writer on The New Yorker and the author most recently of The Moth and the Mountain. I hope you can join us all then.